All right, well, grab your Bibles, turn to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. We, on Sunday evenings, are uh, looking at major themes of Revelation. Rather than go verse, verse by verse, answer all your questions, because I can't answer all those questions, we are rather looking at some of the major themes wanted to see particularly Christ exalted. And so, Revelation 19 is where we're going to go to next. Chapter 4, we saw Christ the Creator. And that theme throughout Revelation, chapter 5, we emphasize Christ the Redeemer. And here, this evening, we want to see Christ the Judge. Revelation 19, so if you will, stand with me out of reverence to God's Word. We'll read the whole chapter, but of course, we'll be looking at other places in the book. John writes on the inspiration of Holy Spirit, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Twenty-four elders, four living creatures, fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. But the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit. Prophecy. And I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in the robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp, sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings, flesh of captains, flesh of mighty men, flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. I saw beasts, the kings of the earth, with their armies gathered to make war against him. He was seated on the horse and against his army. The beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask as always you open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears and our hands and our, and our mouths and our feet that we would um, take your word and, and uh, not get lost in all the detail, but we see you in your glory. Would you be so kind as to show up in a unique and mighty way this evening? May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. Be seated. Charles Taze Russell lived from 1852 to 1960. Maybe some of you all met him along the way. I don't know. But he was a son of a New York businessman, and he was raised in a Presbyterian church. Yet in a crisis of faith, one of which was caused by the death of his mother, among other things, uh, Russell joined the Adventist movement. We talked about the Adventists last week. Remember the story of William Miller, Baptist preacher who predicted the end of the world? It didn't happen. Out of the Millerite movement comes what we now call the Seventh-day Adventists. Seventh-day Adventists is just one branch that came off of Millerism. Well, uh, uh, in this crisis of faith, Russell joined one of those Adventist movement. Two years later, uh, at the age of 18, he started a small Bible study group. And out of this grew a religious movement. Charles Taze Russell would go on to become... Uh, America's most popular preacher, rivaling what Charles Spurgeon was at the time in England. 
We talk a lot about Spurgeon, and rightly so, because he's cool and everything. Uh, Russell uh, rivaled him, though, as you'll see why, we, we don't talk about our crazy uncle as much as Americans. Well, this group, um, this, this Bible study that, that launched a movement, uh, from the very beginning, rejected a number of important Orthodox doctrines, beginning with the Trinity. They held that Christ was not the eternal one with the Father, but rather he was the firstborn of creation. Thus, the first act of creation was the creating of Jesus, who shows up as uh, the, Michael, uh, the archangel Michael, particularly in the Old Testament. Rejected the eternality deity of Christ. Rejected the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Think of Star Wars. The Spirit is a force. Rather than a person, we don't have time to talk about why that is so important to, to distinct between force and, and personhood. Rejected a literal internal hell. Uh, adopted what we now call annihilationism. That is that uh, hell isn't a literal place, but rather you cease to exist. Rejected the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Jesus simply was raised spiritually from the dead. Uh, and they were very focused from the very beginning on the imminent return of Christ. And so... so which makes sense coming out of Adventism, which was born out of this sense of imminence. So to uh, this Bible study group within an Adventist context uh, had the same tendency. Now, initially, um, Russell was hesitant to uh, put a date on when he believed Christ would return. After all, you would think if you're an Adventist, and your group splintered because the dude that founded your movement failed multiple times at this, uh, you would hesitate to it. But nevertheless, uh, some of the people in the group and some of the influential Adventists around Russell did encourage him to actually set a date. And he did. He actually set two dates. The first was in 1874 would begin what he called the Age of the Gentiles a 40-year period culminating in 1914, which would be the uh, uh, Armageddon. So what you have is the age of the Gentiles is Gentile kings would for 40 years have free reign. They would ruin everything. Christ would return victorious at Armageddon 1914. Now, um, this actually isn't original with Russell. From what I can tell, it was around some of his Adventist uh, influencers, uh, um, the guy's leaving my name, uh, my head starts with a B, um, was, was quite influential. However, so that's supposed to happen in 1874, uh, is, is the age of, of, of the Gentiles. Okay. Well, in 1876, we're two years into this 40 year experiment. Taze publishes his first paper, making this argument. He's saying that Christ had returned invisibly in 1874, launching the age of the Gentiles culminating in 1914. His key verse is Luke 21, which says, They will fall by the edge of the sword. He led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, which he believed began in 1874 and will conclude in 1914. Well, in 1889, he was still promoting the same timeline, even though he, by this point, had broken away from the Adventist movement, had some personal disagreements, some theological disagreements, and broken away from them, and really launched his own movement. This is where he really becomes a leading theological uh, figure in the United States. Again, rivaling, uh, he's really, what, what Spurgeon was in England, uh, Russell was, in some sense, um, in America. In January 18 of 1889, he publishes the book Millennial Dawn, The Time is at Hand, right? And who wouldn't want to buy a book called The Time is at Hand? If that's your subtitle, can you imagine what's in the book, right? I mean, come on. I mean, he didn't even need Oprah to promote this book. It claimed that 1872, two years prior to Christ coming invisibly, set up the age of the Gentiles, was the 6,000th anniversary, if you will, of the creation of the earth. And that means at the 6,042nd year of the earth will be the day of creation. That is the year 1940. He writes, the Battle of Armageddon in 1940 will end, I think I have the quote up here, uh, no, will end in 1914 with the complete overthrow of earth's present rulerships. Quote from that book. So where is he getting this stuff? Well, he's getting it from the Bible, his reading of the Bible, I should say. I mean, 1914 ain't in, ain't in the Bible. 
look for it. It's not there. Uh, and if you find it, uh, you need my glasses because <laughs> they're pretty strong. But there's two sources he's getting this information. The first is the Bible. The second, we don't talk enough about. Historians will bring it up, but, but I think his, his present followers are, are afraid to, to, to have this brought up. He gets it from the Great Pyramid of Giza. You didn't see that one coming, did you? Remember what is happening here. Thanks to Napoleon, uh, pyramid, pyramidology and Egyptianology is a new science. It's only been around, what, 150, 200 years. It's really thanks to Napoleon. And so uh, this is why Joseph Smith claims to translate what he called Reformed Egyptian into the Book of Mormon in English. And later takes a mummy, supposedly from Egypt, finds a scroll in it and claims it's the Book of Abraham written by Abraham himself. I mean, no one knew anything about Egyptians, but people found the subject fascinating. And it was believed that when the Jews built the pyramids, the book of Exodus, they put on top of the pyramid of Giza a message that could only have been interpreted and understand in the modern world, particularly in the time of Charles Taze Russell. Now, now can we just pause there and say, if you find any inscription, any scroll, any message, anything, and you start with, well... No one in history could have understood this until I arrived. Stop right there and never pick up where we left off. You're the problem. Okay? Uh, but nevertheless, this was actually a, a quite a common theory. The, uh, the, the, the uh, Great Pyramid of Giza has a secret message and, and everything. By the way, he, he believed this because he read the Bible. You didn't know this was in the Bible, did you? It's not. But here it is. Isaiah chapter 19 says, in that day, see, Russell's day, right? Clearly, in that day means the day of Russell, if you're Russell. It clearly means 2021, if you're living in 2021. But in that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior, defender, deliver them. Now, I know what you're saying. What does it have to do with Giza? Nothing. But you have something there, and you can make it say whatever you want. Now, if, if you're interested in this, Russell wrote several articles and uh, books on the subject. Uh, he, he was a regular writer, had a huge, huge readers, readership that, that was larger than even that of Miller we talked about last week. Well, January 1914 finally arrives, right? It's the 40-year period of the Gentiles, started in 1874. He writes the following. Now, this is the year... Of Armageddon, the year, the age of the Gentiles is going to end, the world's going to come to an end, all that. He writes this. This, the, the, this is how he starts the year. From every point of view, the year 1914 seems big with possibilities. The headlines of all the newspapers of the world tell that our master's prediction of nearly 19 centuries ago is being fulfilled. Now, uh, there are some quotes you'll find of him where he seems to be backtracking. What I think he's doing is he's covering his steps before he... He, he, he does what, what happened to Miller, right? And so, but, but if you read him, he's saying, look, I anticipate this is going to happen this year. Well, what happens in 1914? Anyone tell me what big world event? Yes. Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated in the, what is, was called Yugoslavia. But anyway, it started a war. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, which was at the time known as the Great War, right? It was the war to end all wars. That is why hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? <laughs> Hitler's in fighting like the war to end all wars. <laughs> have, have I got a joke to tell them? Well, now think about your, the, the timing here. You predicted in 1914 Armageddon's going to happen. And guess what happens in 1914? It looks like Armageddon. After all, what did Jesus say to all of his discourse? You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. In a biography, uh, one of the few biographies you'll find of Russell, which is striking considering how influential he was and remains, actually, as we'll see, writes, quote, although from a technical point of view, as Mark pointed out, World War I is triggered by assassination of Archduke Franz, Franz Ferdinand, in June of 1914, the actual war breaks out in August of 1914 when Germany invades Belgium and France. The war escalates when the Russians retreat from East Prussia and is clear by late September that Great Britain has entered the conflict. For Russell, the war is the fulfillment of this 1914 prophecy. 
On the morning of Friday, October the 2nd, 1914, Charles enters the dining room of the movement's headquarters in Brooklyn and announces, quote, The Gentile times has ended. Their kings have had their day. Many of those gathered for breakfast that morning were sure the rapture of the saints to heaven will follow his proclamation in seconds. Well, if you're here, you're well aware no rapture came. This lack of rapture led to a drop in membership and a splintering of the movements. Russell dies in 1916, two years after the supposed Armageddon return of Christ. His movement is primarily taken over by a guy named Joseph Rutherford. Now, you need to understand that with Mormonism, you have Joseph Smith, who's the charismatic leader everyone wants to follow, no matter how crazy he is. But when he dies, the, the movement is taken over by a really good administrator who can organize and unite the movement under a common cause. And his name was Brigham Young. Well, this movement goes to the same thing. Uh, it is founded essentially by Charles Taze Russell, but they credit the movement you'll be familiar with here in a second. They credit Joseph Rutherford with the actual founding of the movement. He's not. He was a disciple of Russell for years and years and years. And when the failure of, of, the, of Russell's prediction took place, you have to have someone who can keep the group together, especially after the founder dies. And Rutherford is that guy. Now, what is this movement that is still around and they will still come knocking on your door? In fact, a few years ago, when I was a pastor in Breckenridge County living in a parsonage, they clearly didn't know we were living in a parsonage, came knocking on the door. Uh, I had an infant son at the time, was in no mood to debating theology, but I just couldn't help myself. They show up and I'm ready to just get rid of them. And they say, we would like to, to, to tell you about Christ's imminent return. And it all started in 1914. You see, the story has changed a lot of times. But what they now say is Christ returned spiritually in 1914. And I remember saying to these two witnesses, so before you prove, before we go any farther, I want you to prove to me from the Bible that Jesus showed up in 1914. And please show me in the Bible where, where the Archduke was assassinated launching the Great War. I would love to. Of course, they, you, you can't do that. The movement is, of course, the Jehovah's Witnesses. This is the genesis of the JWs. Now, this is the first of many predictions they made. If we had time, we've done it before. Um, I could give you uh, uh, several other predictions. Rutherford uh, himself made several predictions. One is he published a book called Millions Now Living Will will not survive the end. or it, it, had, it was something. He passed around these pamphlets and stuff. By the way, here's the JW's website. They have this quote. Bible chronology indicates that God's kingdom was established in heaven. See the language there? How convenient. 1914. This is shown by the prophecy recorded in Daniel chapter 4. Well, I think it's obvious that, I, that they're wrong. But once again, we see the tendency to get so distracted by the details of Revelation that what is missed in the book is the Christ of, Re of Revelation. Christ our creator, Christ our redeemer, and Christ our judge. Several years ago, Johnny Cash was asked to uh, come up with a title for a compilation album that his record company would sell. Their suggestion was to categorize all of his music into three categories. They suggested the categories of love, gospel, and prison. He thought he could simplify it even further. Maybe you know what it was. Love, God, and murder, which I think is, fits Johnny Cash's music a little better. But one could say that whenever we open up Revelation 19, we see three themes that dominate the entire book of Revelation in a single chapter. Worship, marriage, and justice. Let's start with worship here. Notice the first two words. It takes a while to get through these first two words after that. I think we'll fly a little faster. It says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. Now that phrase after this tells you that something came before this chapter, right? That's one of the disadvantages of, of us bouncing around in Revelation is, is, is we're, we're sort of forced to, to skip over some things we otherwise wouldn't. Let me just sort of summarize where we are by, by chapter 19. Clearly we're getting to the end of 
of, of the unfolding of prophecy here in Revelation or how it is you, you may read Revelation. I want to do that by, by, by sort of summarizing much of what happens between chapter 6, where, where we left off last week, and chapter 19, where we pick off this week, by emphasizing four powers in the book of Revelation, four earthly, four earthly powers. The first is the beast, who I believe represents a political power. Now, uh, he is given in some detail at the first half of chapter 13. Uh, uh, and again, I think this is a reference to political influence for the sake of argument. Ch- chapter 13, and put it up here, verse 1 says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on his horns, and blasphemous names on his heads. Notice there an emphasis on diadems, crowns. This beast has multiple crowns. Now, there's two ways to read this beast. The first is that this beast represents an individual. The term you may be most familiar with is the term antichrist. Now, the word antichrist never shows up in Revelation. It shows up in 1 John. Same writer, I believe, of Revelation, but it's a different book. Revelation is prophetic and apocalyptic. 1 John is an epistle. It's just a letter. In fact, if we, if we could pause there and say it's very possible we already know who the Antichrist of 1 John is. And that is an early church a heretic who denied the, uh, uh, the physical uh, body of Christ. If you read 1 John, you'll see that's, that's the big issue. The doctrine is called docetism. We don't have time to talk about We've gone through 1 John before. We've talked about Ser- Servi- Servius or something like that. I'm not getting the name right. So it could represent a single individual, call him the beast, call him the antichrist, whatever. That's probably the view you've grown up with, especially in a dispensationalist context. I think it's a possible interpretation. Another possibility is that the beast represents empire. In Daniel chapter 7, there are four beasts. And they, most scholars agree, represent Babylon, the Medo-Persians, Greece, and then Rome. And the thinking is, the interpretation is that the fourth beast, Rome, is the worst of the four. Now, put yourself in the readership of, of, of the first readers, okay? They were all persecuted believers in Asia Minor. And so when you hear of the beast rising out of the sea with many crowns on his head, and he's a political force, what comes to mind here? It's obviously Rome. So many will see that Rome uh, it could, could be depicted here by the beast, either in the past or a future nation. Uh, my general view of Revelation, probably wrong, as, as are you, that, that Revelation describes Rome in general to fit the original readers, but also uh, either a pattern of empires or a future empire that will come in judgment. So we meet the beast of chapter 13. But also there is a second character we need to meet, and that is the false prophet. If the beast, the false prophet is also as the second beast of chapter 13. The false prophet is the religious power. Uh, so what we have here is a marriage of politics and religion, uh, which is basically what secularism is trying to do now, in my humble opinion. In chapter 13, he's described as forcing the inhabitants of the earth to, quote, worship the first beasts. He uses this religious power and influence to hijack the economic system. You tell me if you've ever heard of this passage before. Also it, the second beast, the false prophet, causes both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, you and I get distracted by 666. We start salivating at the mouth thinking, is that the vaccine? It's not. But what you need to see here is the convergence of political religious power with economic influence. That's the point of the mark of the beast. And in Revelation, you're either marked by the spirits or marked by the beast. Okay? So we spend too much time thinking that we're going to... Uh, uh, willy-nilly just, just get injected with something and we've lost our salvation. That is not what you're having in, in, in Revelation. Uh, but you see the seduction of the religious and political power uh, over the economic world. The third character here is the dragon. 
This, I believe, represents spiritual power. In chapter 12, we meet a woman who is clothed with the sun. Yeah, try painting that, okay? Now, that is either a reference to Israel or to the church. If you're a Catholic, it represents Mary because they see Mary everywhere. Like old fundamentalists used to see the devil in rock music everywhere, right? You know, if, if you were to play a record backwards from the 1980s, you heard a voice from Satan. I think Satan always said, hey, you're playing the record backwards. But nevertheless, right, if you're Catholic, you see Mary everywhere. But nevertheless, it probably represents the Israel church. You pick one. You're probably wrong, as am I. But nevertheless, she gives birth to, obviously, the dragon. And you, you know the story, right? In chapter 12, maybe we'll look at this come, come Christmas. She gives birth to the Messiah. And what's the dragon waiting to do? Waiting to devour the child. It's a very grotesque uh, a, a visual that I'm sure Planned Parenthood would, would love to depict in one of their clinics. But uh, uh, he waits to do that. But the child and the woman are protected by God, right? So there's all kinds of imagery and you can, you can do whatever it is you, you want with them. But John in that story or that narrative passage tells us exactly who the dragon is. And this is one of those examples where we don't have to try very hard to figure this out. Chapter 12, verse 9 says, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. I mean, he gives you like 80 titles of the dude so that if you missed one, you've got 79 other options maybe you'll be familiar with. Ancient serpent, obviously going back to Genesis 3, the devil, um, Satan or the Satan in, in a Hebrew context, right? So it's very clear who the dragon is. So this is a spiritual power that we have here. Um, now, the, the image of Satan as a serpent-like or dragon-like or reptilian-like figure is very common in the Bible, whether it be Leviathan or something like that. Sea monsters, right? You, you get this all the time in the Bible. And, of course, in Sinka Temple Judaism and a lot of artwork, and you, you get this, right? Um, now, in Revelation, this mighty dragon deceives the nations, its kings, and most importantly, the beast. In chapter 13, verse 2, it says, uh, The beast, and to the beast, the dragon gave his power and his throne uh, and great authority. So we've met a beast, we've met a false prophet, which is the second beast, and a dragon. Finally, there is the harlot. We, we talked briefly today that it's possible you can connect Jezebel of Thyatira with the harlot here. It all depends on how you read Revelation. Uh, if you're a preterist, which I, I, I'm sympathetic to, I think there's connections. If everything is in the future, then, then this connection may not work. With that said, chapter uh, 17, verse 18 says, The woman you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So the woman is connected to the great city of Babylon. But more than just representing Babylon... She represents the corruption and the immorality of Babylon. That's why I refer to her as the moral power. So you have uh, a, a spiritual power, religious power, political power, and a moral power. And these come together to play a part in economic influence. But regardless, she is morally corrupt. In fact, she is seen riding on the beast, right? Um, and she is violent towards the people of God. And as a result, she will come under judgment. So these are your, your, your four characters. Look at them again. The beast, the false prophet, the dragon, and the harlot. Now, this is a lot of what's happening, particularly between chapters 12 and chapters 18. It's a lot. And I gave it to you in just, just a few minutes and skipped a lot of details. Now, these four characters combine uh, to bring Captain Planet, of course. But they combine to describe the complete corruption of Babylon politically, morally, religiously, economically, spiritually, every aspect of Babylon, whether that is ancient Rome or a future power or it's the pattern of empire throughout history, they, 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 they combine to, to describe this city, this, this fallen city, the, the, the kings and the nations. And, and, and what is striking throughout the story of, of, of Revelation is their primary target is is the people of God. And if you're one of these readers, this makes sense because you're reading through. We talked about Thyatira today and the unions. They can see the economic threats coming their way. 
If you don't worship Apollo, if you don't get with the program, you're, on, you're out on the streets. So you have religious, political, spiritual, and moral corruption in what they would call Babylon. And if you're one of these Christians, what do you want the most? What you want the most is for Christ to come in judgments. And this is precisely what we get starting in chapter 18. We don't have time to look in great details of chapter 18, but, but let us just say for the sake of argument, that chapter 18 is the judgment of Christ upon Babylon and the nations from an earthly perspective. So you see in uh, chapter 18, verse 2, and the angel called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And so what we're getting in chapters 18 and 19 is the story of Babylon's fall. First of all, we see political fallout of Babylon in um, chapter uh, verse 9 through 10. The kings of the earth who committed immorality and lived in luxury with her. Remember, this is the woman who represents Babylon or really the corruption and immorality of Babylon. Will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her, of, of her burning. And remember, that's, that's similar language to what we saw in Jezebel. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas. You great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. These are the kings, the political influencers of the world. Not just political fallout, there would be economic fallout. In verses 11 through 13, actually much of this chapter has to do with the economic fallout. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves, that is human souls. By the way, notice how the Bible describes slavery here. You're not going to get that in the mainstream media, are you? Human souls, those slaves. Don't forget, they're human souls. And, 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 and Babylon will come crashing down because of that institution, among all the other corruption. So if chapter 18 portrays the fall of Babylon from an earthly perspective, chapter 19 describes the fall of Babylon from a heavenly perspective. While the kings and the merchants mourn her great fall, the divine council and the saints in heaven rejoice that she has fallen. Notice the language here at the, at the end of verse 1, going all the way down to verse 4. It, it should probably sound familiar. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they cried out. You're paying attention now. Hallelujah, the smoke and her from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. Now, if you're reading this, you've been trekking with us the last few weeks, you're thinking, that sounds really familiar. It should sound really familiar. It's what we've been reading the last two weeks. In chapter four and chapter five, we meet the four living creatures and the 24 elders. And what do they do? They got one job. They fall down, they worship him who was slain and yet is, is alive forevermore. The lion lamb, the one who sits upon the throne. And they say the same exact things that you, you see here. So just as they worship the Christ who sits upon a throne as creator, the lion lamb who is a redeemer, and here Christ who is judge, same language applied in all three perspectives of, of Christ. Thus, in the eyes of Revelation, we must understand Christ in these three central ways. Verse 2, his judgments are, say, are said to be true and just. Therefore, he destroys the harlot and those who target the saints truly and justly. At the end of verse 1, at the beginning of the song, and then it's repeated down in verse 3, you have the, it's a Hebrew word, hallelujah, hallel. Uh, Yahweh, basically. It's, it means, Hallel means praise. Yahweh means, means the Lord. So, so this phrase in Hebrew only shows up in two books in the entire Bible. Revelation, obviously, and of course, the, the book of Psalms. But it's only the end of the book of Psalms. The last few Psalms are known as Hallel Psalms. They begin with the phrase in your English Bible, praise the Lord. Let me give you one example. I randomly chose one of these, and it just fit this passage perfectly. Uh, Psalm 149. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, right? Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Notice here you're describing an assembly in heaven, the divine council, 24 elders, uh, four living creatures. 
Let Israel be glad in his maker. That takes us back to chapter 4, doesn't it? Uh, Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. That takes us to chapter 5 of Revelation. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands. Two-edged swords are going to show up later in chapter 19, ain't it? It goes on. uh, To execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples. To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. To execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all all his godly ones. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. It's almost like the writer of Psalm 149 had just read Revelation. Or maybe Jesus, who was around when Psalm 149 was written, understood how he would deal with the nations. Thus, from the perspective of heaven, the final judgment of Christ received with joy and worship. The God who creates and redeems will do so finally by the means of judgments. And just pause here and think about that is language you and I have probably never even thought of. That we worship a Savior who is judge. And then when Christ shows up in judgment, as he will do in gory language at the end of this, this, this chapter, heaven rejoices and writes songs about it. Because it is true and just and good. After all, we get worked up every time something happens in this nation. What are we crying for? Justice. Judgment. Why? Because we know judgment is good. Just, justice is divine. Why do we expect God to somehow overlook you and me? Well, that is the worship. Let's look at marriage here. All these things are, are related. Remember, this is all from a heavenly perspective. The background of this chapter is significant. We are to contrast, remember, the, the harlot. We, we met her, particularly in chapter 17. And we are to contrast the harlot with the bride that's introduced here. The harlot we learn in chapter 17 is, is, uh, has blasphemous names. She is immoral. Uh, chapter 17, verse 5, let me read it. Uh, it's, it's significant. 17.5 says, And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of harlots and of earth's abominations. How about having that for a title? Now notice it's written on her forehead. Okay, so this marking language is all over Revelation. So in Revelation, a marking on the forehead is associated with identity. So you're with the beast or you're with the saints. Um, she is marked with Babylon. She's described as violent in chapter 17, verse 6. And also, um, uh, John is stunned when he sees her. He just can't believe just, just what it is that he's seeing there in chapter 17. Well, can contrast that with the bride here in chapter 19. In verse 6, she, she receives praise, right? I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of, of many waters and the sound of many peals of thunder crying out, right? This is in the context of, of, of the marriage. Here's praise. Now, ladies, get you a man that'll hire an orchestra and a choir like this on your wedding day, right? I mean, wouldn't you like that? You know, if, if you're already married, sorry, ladies, you didn't read your Bible close enough before your, your wedding, but purity, she's described as pure in verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. I mean, she, she, she's made herself ready. She, she is pure. Um, verse, verse 18, that of righteousness. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Notice that she is dressed in, in this. The harlot, by contrast, is arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and purities of her immorality. The bride is beautiful and pure, we're to see. The harlot disguises her defilements. On the outside, she looks, she, she, she's adorned, but in her cup, the things she drinks from, the things that consumes her is filthiness. The bride, on the other hand, is beautiful. She is pure. She is holy. In the end, the harlot makes herself available for all and thus is loved by none. The bride is available and ready for one. And what we see here, she's loved by all. But we cannot just add a, a, a footnote of application here. This is why marriage matters. This is why purity matters. You can take someone who spends their entire life uh, living in immorality and sin. 
And they die just as much with the guy who's faithful to one woman his entire life. They both die. One of them dies alone. The other is surrounded by friends and family he's invested in their entire life. The reason why marriage matters is almost as if God invented it for us. Well, verses 9 and 10, the bride is ready for, for her wedding day. And we discover later that the bride represents the church. It may be helpful to think that Revelation is likely, and you can disagree with me here, we'll both be wrong. Revelation probably isn't written in chronological order. Um, this is something that, that once I saw it, I, I see it everywhere now. We think of it as, okay, chapter 6, all these things are going to take place. Then chapter 7, all these things are going to take place. And we just keep going. The problem is, is it's, it's chronological, yes, but it's cyclical. So you get the bride in chapter 19. We meet the bride again in chapter 21. And it's written as if we didn't know who the bride was. We're told she's made herself ready. Oh, by the way, it's the church. And it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we're getting hints here. It's developed more later. And this is a common tactic we, we get in Revelation. Um, ultimately, what is it we're supposed to see over this wedding is what comes out of this judgment. Christ's judgment is not destructive primarily. It is constructive. This is the difference between a mob and Christ. An angry mob only wants to destroy and steal. Never redistributes what they steal, which is odd to me. Yay, Marxism, I'll take what's for me, but I'm never going to distribute it. Sorry, I didn't say that. But, 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 but so, so you get destruction with that sort of system. Christ comes not to simply to destroy, but to create his redeemer. And we see that here. In judgment, he comes as groom for a bride who has made, himself ready, made herself ready, which makes sense in light of the seven letters. Hey, Ephesians, who are indifferent and cold, re remember and repent. Hey, 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 Pergamum, who, who are being seduced into idolatry and immorality. Same for you, Thyatira, who, who are tolerating and flirting with Jezebel. Repent, for I come in judgment, but I come for my bride. Make yourself ready now for that day. Christ cleanses the world. He will establish an eternal kingdom, which begins with the union of groom and bride, Christ and the church. I just looked at the time. I warned you. Let's look briefly at verses 11 through, through 21. Justice. Yeah, there it is. Justice. The scene changes again because we have the phrase there, verse 11, I saw heaven open, which means we, we, we've made a transition here. And what John sees there is a white horse. Now, there's one problem here, and that is this is not the first white horse we've seen. And this is where Revelation, among other places, gets really tricky. Is the first rider of the four horsemen of the apocalypse the same dude as, as, that's on the horse here? I don't have an answer there. Um, I explored this in more detail in our daily devotions last year uh, during all the COVID stuff. So you can see uh, my answer there. So it could be two riders, could be the same guy. However, what you have described here is the day of the Lord. However, I, I made the point that Revelation is cyclical, and I think we've already seen the day of the Lord. Um, uh, let me, this is from chapter 19 that we'll look at elsewhere. Chapter 19, Christ is described, verse 12. He has eyes uh, are like flame of fire. We talked about that this morning. On his head are many diadems. Compare that to the beast, right? He's a true and better one. Uh, also, verse 12, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Um, verse 13, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Some debate as to the meaning of, of blood. Is it like reference to the cross? Is it reference to battle? Um, verse 14, the armies of heaven were following him also on white horses. From his mouth, verse 15, he strikes down the nations. Verse 15, he rules or he shepherds. We talked about that this morning with a rod of iron. Chapter 16, on his robe and thigh, he is named king of kings and lord of lords, right? This revelation has a lot to do with kings and diadems and nations and all that. And the verse 15 is the summary. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty, okay? And, and what is the outcome of this? The birds get their bellies full. You see this in 17 and 18, and you also see it at the end of verse 21. In fact, 21 says all the birds were gorged with their flesh. But you never read that in Sunday school growing up, did you? Kids, we're going to talk about birds eating human flesh. Prayer request? You know, no, we, we skipped that part, didn't we? Um, this is the day of the Lord. 
um, I think all the prophets of the Old Testament talk about it. But I think Revelation has talked about this. Go, go to Revelation 6. Hope you're not in a hurry. Revelation 6. Revelation 6 starts with the four horsemen, the six seals. Um, verse 12 to 16. Note this language here. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. Stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanishes like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. The kings of the earth and the great ones of the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and mountains, calling to the rocks and mountains, uh, mountains and rocks, rather, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? If you read this chronologically, judgment has just started. If you read it uh, cyclically, this fits within chapter 19. You have an unraveling of the cosmos itself, which is consistent with Joel, Ezekiel, and, and the other prophets, right? Or look at chapter 8, uh, verse 7. Uh, we'll go down to verse 12. The first angel blew his trumpet, so you get seven seals, now you get seven trumpets. First angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. These were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up. All the green grass was burned up. Second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown to the sea. Notice the first one was on the earth. This one is on the sea. A third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. A third of the ships were destroyed. Third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, uh, blazing like a, uh, a torch, and it fell on the third of the rivers and on springs. So you have earth, sea, and rivers. Uh, the name of the star is Wormwood. The third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun. So you have earth, uh, sea, rivers, and now sun. Uh, it, and it goes dark. Obviously, there's connections to the Exodus of, or, or to the ten plagues of, of Egypt. But you see, it's very much the same language, an unraveling of the cosmos. We could do the same thing in chapter 6. You get judgment on the earth, judgment on the sea, judgment on the rivers, judgment on the sun. These are the bold judgments. Judgment on the thrones of the beasts and judgment on the Euphrates River in chapter 16 and verse, verse 12. Chapter 16, verse 15 and 16, I, I didn't put it up there. Uh, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be exposed. And they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The, 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 it's actually Har Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo. The problem with that is there is no mountain in Megiddo. Megiddo's a, just, it's, it's a field. So a lot of battles are out there, right? Israel's got, uh, right now, got protective measures around Megiddo, right? So, so it's, it's a well-known, I think Napoleon fought a battle there and whatnot. So um, uh, the point here is, this is likely describing the great day of the Lord, where Christ returns, sets up his eternal kingdom once and for all, and he judges the nations. In fact, in verses 19 and 21, who in particular is pointed out here in judgments? It's the beast and the false prophets. Now, perhaps this is the same battle of Har Megiddo. Maybe it is. I don't know. I could be wrong about all this sort of stuff. I'll let you know when I get to heaven. I'll haunt you in your dreams. What matters most, rather than all those details, is that Christ casts both beasts, the beast and the false prophet, into the lake of fire. And this is the same judgment all the wicked receive. Chapter 20, verse 10, the devil who had deceived them, that's the dragon, was thrown into the lake of fire. And guess who's there with him? The beast and the false prophet. I read that in chapter 19, didn't I? Also in chapter 20, we see then death and Hades itself were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Second death is referenced in the seven letters to the church in Asia Minor. So it's not just the beast and the false prophet and the dragon, but that death itself and the grave itself is thrown in there. This is why we speak of eternal life, because death is, has been conquered by the one who is risen from the dead. Finally, chapter 20, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's where the wicked goes. This is the final judgment. 
All of this is introduced here in, in chapter 19, developed in chapter 19, so that we can see, yes, as Christ is creator, so we understand who we are and our identity and all of those things. Yes, Christ is redeemer, so we become new creatures with, with new desires and, and, and new everything, but also Christ is judge. This world is not our home, and all the wrongs will be made right, eternally right. This is good news. Can I make just two quick applications as quickly as I can? First of all, judgment is good news. We've already talked about this, so I don't want to belabor it. We do have a habit of saying on the one hand, Jesus won't judge me. On the other hand, screaming in all caps on Twitter and Facebook about how something had better be done about so-and-so hurt my feelings. We know judgment is and justice is necessary. But put yourself in the shoes of early believers. They are impoverished because of the beast. They are targeted victims of an unjust system that has weaponized the markets. They are oppressed by an empire that worships, in their view, the dragon. They are appalled by the licentiousness all around them. Would you not pray, come Lord Jesus quickly? I pray that just so we don't have to go through another presidential election. <laughs> now imagine if that election, regardless of who wins, you're going to prison and will likely be executed. The reason too many Christians fail to take the judgment of God seriously is because we are still in love with this world. God's justice is good news. Finally, Divine judgment produces hope. I love this quote from Spurgeon. When we speak of heaven and the joys of this life, let your face lighten up, your smile shine, and your eyes twinkle. When you speak of hell, your ordinary face will do just fine. I love that. I, I, that's, that's good. I just love Spurgeon. But we do live in a fallen, corrupt, wicked world. It's been this way since Eden, and it will remain so until the final return of Christ. There is great hope in knowing Christ is going to put an end to all of this. We can get distracted by all these details. Christ will put an end to all of it. The guilty and the corrupt and the evil will be held accountable. Justice will be served. And we will rejoice with the heavens. Not only that, but the doctrine of hell draws us to consider heaven. Do we not long for the presence of God? Do we not long to escape this present darkness? Is it not good news to know that Christ is preparing a place for you and I, and he will come back to get us? Our job, in the meantime, is to be like a bride. Make ourselves ready. And that means, brothers and sisters, it's time for us to go shopping. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for, for your love and your mercy. Help us to, to wrestle with difficult texts and, and everything else.